0: It's a, a perfect opportunity to come out the other side and go, look, we're not racing our competition to get the prices as low as we can get and to the bottom and do quantity over quality. We're, we're going, this is a quality product. We're using local suppliers. We're using good staff that we're paying properly and we're investing in. And um, this is the cost that it, it, it is to get your food on the plate.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. As we grow up, we look back at meals, at occasions, with fond memories, dishes passed down through generations, home cooking, gathering around the family table and connecting through food. Food has a wonderful way of creating lasting memories, but how do you replicate those moments in a restaurant setting and give people a sense of nostalgia? Tommy Prosser is the executive chef at Berrimer Vault House. Tommy, how are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Huck. How are you? Good. You've done many things in your career, but at the moment you're sort of going back in time and delivering a bit of nostalgia for guests. What's it like trying to do that in a restaurant setting?
0: Look, it's, it's, it's obviously got its challenges, you know. Like I was born, born in England, um, started washing up when I was 13, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm obviously stuck in Australia, you know, like a lot of expats are. So it's nice to get back and, and try and channel those, those memories and those flavours that I had growing up and to be able to share that with um, the Australians, the locals and, and people that are far away from home. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge, but I think if you channel enough of those memories and feelings yourself
1: into your food, then it, it, it comes
0: out the other side.
1: Well, tell us a bit about those memories. What, what are some of the dishes that you're uh, creating? And, and take us back to when you were young to those dishes and why they're so important.
0: Look, um, so on the, on the menu we've got a prawn cocktail, um, which is is something that was quite popular growing up in England and obviously a lot more popular in the 80s, 70s and 80s, um, early 90s. Um now you can't really find them anywhere they're sort of one of those dishes that have gone into the it's 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 an old dish you know people don't find it interesting for myself I could eat it breakfast lunch and dinner <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm am a big fan of those flavors so we've we've I've obviously spent a lot of time coming up with the recipes that remind me and and hit those uh, receptors in my brain that lets you lets you go back in time. You put that spoon in your mouth and you can close your eyes and you could be back at the first time that you tried it. You know, surrounded by your family and loved ones and you open your eyes and you're in the vault house, which is a 1844 building. Um, so yeah, I kind of yeah, it, 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 it's it's a fun challenge.
1: What, what sort of response have you had from guests as you take that dive into your past and, and translate it for them on the table?
0: Well, we had um, a, a, about a month ago we had a couple in the restaurant and we had a, a, a roast shared roast dinner and then the dessert was a jam roly-poly with custard uh, made with the suet, uh, pastry, local jam. And uh, one of the girls at the table actually started crying because she missed her family and missed the family in England, you know. So the waiter came up and they go, "The girl's crying." We're not. Oh, it's not that bad, is it? <laughs> they go, no, no. It's because it's, it's it's stirred up the memories. So um, there's been a fair bit of that at the moment already, you know, which is which is great. We're only two months old, um, and and that's that's the challenge that I've I've sort of undertaken with with this role.
1: Take us back to the UK when you were young. When did you first start getting interested in, in food?
0: My my family, um, my dad loves cooking, uh, loves experimenting, doesn't usually like a recipe or chuck a load of stuff in the pan and usually usually comes out pretty good and, and mum's an avid baker of sourdough and cakes and that kind of stuff now, so um, uh, growing up, Dad's mum used to supply the local pubs and restaurants and, and things with um, with cakes that she would make. So I was kind of always surrounded by it. Um, and then when I was 13, I started washing up at the local pub, covering for my brother on the weekends, went from there to college. Um, after that, my Michelin star restaurant, Grave Time Manor, which was um, – had alumni like Darren Robertson, Phil Vickery, Marcus Raring, all sort of did some time through there. Um, the head chef was Mark Raffan, and he was one of the owners. It was on a 1,000 acres, uh, 18th century manor house, um, one one acre kitchen garden, which was walled off to keep all the rabbits out. Um, so I was quite lucky there, you know. We had a gameskeeper that had come in once a month with a couple of deer over his shoulder. So I got exposed to breaking those down there, made five different types of bread. Um, and I was, I was there for about two years, so I was lucky enough to work every section. I was on pastry for about two months with the pastry chef, and then he quit. So I was running pastry for about seven months at 19 in a one Michelin star restaurant, coming up with the specials, doing the research,
1: Um a week into my... What was that like as a young chef given so much um, obligation and uh, to come up with something like that at a young age?
0: I was, I look, I always kind of um, took it in my stride, you know, like I'm a proud Englishman. I've never really liked asking for help. It's always the stiff upper lip, you sort of, it down and bear it, you know, and, and, and just work through. So I, I, I relished the challenge. I'd been on the veg section for about six months um, where obviously you're doing what the the, uh, the main course and the fish chef all want to do. They go, this is what we're doing. So to be able to release some of that creativity and do some research um, and, and execute it, it was, it was fantastic, you know, it was a bit of freedom that you never usually get. And not a lot of people get to have at that young age, you know. So it was kind of swings and roundabouts. Like I was never, because I was quite capable, I was never really put underneath anyone to, to learn directly and have anyone mentoring. Um, but then you get like this self starter attitude where you've got to go learn and, and and be proactive and 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 find your own way, you know, underneath the guys the guidelines of what uh, is expected
1: off the menu. What sort of food were you cooking at that time? Do you have a dish that you remember that you can tell us about from then?
0: Um, yeah, look, one of my my ones that I was really happy with um, that I came up with on the pastry was um, a, a wild strawberry bavoise uh, that I made with a, a, a chocolate sponge underneath. So I grated the chocolate through a genoise, um, made a wild strawberry Bavoirs made a, a wild strawberry um, coulis as well, and then a champagne and strawberry jelly on top. So it was, it was, it was nice. It was different, and then obviously some little strawberry crisps for a bit more texture. So I, I, I enjoyed it, and and we were exposed to like some of the best ingredients around. I know we've got pretty good strawberries in England, but we were getting. Uh, strawberries from this specific region in France and they were coming over on a wooden tray. So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very different. Um, but the wild strawberries were from the garden. So I was always a bit questioning why we were getting some of those overseas things when we had such amazing produce in, in, in our own backyard, you know? Um, but yeah, I was I was I was very fortunate and very very lucky that they put trust in me to be able to to execute that, you know. Um, and then when I was one week in, for example, the sous chef and the chef de party on the veg section got into a little scuffle and and dislocated the the veg chef's shoulder on a Friday night. So he, he took him to hospital and uh, I was left to run the section on a on a sixty cover Friday night in my first week. Like Oh, okay, <laughs> so so it's just little things like that where you, you either sink or swim, and, and fortunately, I was had enough going for me that I could I could swim. Um, yeah, it's it's it's
1: it's interesting. <laughs> you ended up at the Waterside Inn, a three Michelin star legendary restaurant. How did that come about?
0: Um, look, so I. I always wanted to work at the best, you know, so I, I, I knew there was a step that I needed to take in my career, different, different levels and different grades that I needed to do. But I, if, if you're going to do something, you want to do it the best that you can do. Right. Um. So when I was at grave time, Mark had worked for the Rue brothers at the Gavroche just after Marco had been there. And I was getting a little bit itchy and wanted to move on and see some other staff. And, um ended up doing a two-week stage at the waterside inn um after that i thought it was was amazing came back came up with some specials at, at grave tie and and i just didn't really feel like there was much more room to grow there you know so i i i handed my notice in he goes where are you going i go oh, i don't know yet i'm gonna take some time and maybe go to the waterside he's like you Haven't got a job and you, you're leaving, he goes, That's you're not doing that. I went, Yeah, oh, okay. He goes, You, you email Chef Allen and see if you can get a job. So, anyway, I went downstairs to the computer, sent off an email to Chef, and uh, said I really enjoyed my time. And anyway, he's come back uh, about a week later and said, Yeah, we'd love to offer you a, a job. When can you start? And I, I started there when I was uh 20, so I was um. Did three days on the herb section, that herb section at the waterside where you, you pick herbs, chop tomato concast, chop all the herbs and and, and and do the julienne of the veg for the troncinette of lobster, which is one of the signature dishes from Michel Roux, uh, I think pretty close to when they first opened. They had a white port sauce and amazing, amazing pan-fried lobster. So I did three days on that section and then got moved over to uh, the front fish so I, I was ending up cooking all the fish doing the sauces and 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 helping prepare where I needed to uh, which was fantastic so I, I I was fortunate enough to work there in the original kitchen um spent nine months on the front fish section then there was a uh, a two and a half million pound refurb of the kitchen and about five of us got asked to stay behind and and um uh, cook while they were doing the refurb for different functions and different small gatherings from the little um, satellite kitchen. And then I was part of the reopening team as well. Um, from there, on, I was on the front fish for that reopening and then moved to the butchery, which is something that I always had had an interest in, like in between Gravetie and the water side. I went and worked at butcher, uh, the two guys had like 150 years of experience between them, you know. One was 80 and been butchering since he was 13, and the other one was 70 and, and been butchering for about the same amount of time, you know. So I always sort of seeked out those those ones. I, I, when I was 15, I went to the local butcher and found out how to tie meat. went to the local fishmonger before one of my competitions at college and, learned how to shuck scallops so I could go do that on the competition day, you know, and just spent the whole day shucking scallops and, and learning how the producers do stuff because um, it was always very important to me to see stuff from from the, the purest raw form um, to that finished part on the plate, you know, and, and knowing the providence of it. So I was, I, was, I was, yeah, very proactive and very kind of keen to learn every aspect of it. And I could have very easily seen myself being a butcher and, and running those. So when I got onto the butchery section of the waterside, it was like I'd struck gold. You know, I was, we'd get the whole magrays in from, from from France with the frog glass still in them. Uh, the ducks would come in. You'd have to you'd have to pluck those. You'd get a whole heap of different game birds: teal, pheasant, partridge, and they'd come in with all their feathers on, and you'd pluck those all down woodcocks you'd cook them whole because uh, they excrete when they take off you 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 make a pate out of all the innards there's no there's nothing in there that's that's bad you know and you we we were making a pate to order so each woodcock that got roasted off chop up all the innards with the foie gras put that on the crouton and toast the and that under the under the grill um so it was, it was fantastic at the water side, you know. The learning curve was, was really steep um, and you either sank or swam. And, again, I was put on to run those sections straight away. Um, Michelle Rue would come in after shooting five pheasants at 5.30 p.m. on a Friday night and go, I need these prepped for my dinner. And you go, oh, yeah, okay, chef, you can't say no. And they're, they're whole. They've got the feathers. You've got to quarter them. You've got to pluck them, bar them with fat on the outside and and then vacuum pack them so he can, he can take them away. And, yeah, they're trying to prep up for 130 covers on a three-Michelin-star dinner. So, um, yeah, look, and there we were exposed to the, the best ingredients in the world, the milk-fed lamb from the Pyrenees as well. We'd break those down, whole suckling pigs, uh, sides of veal, um, Fragrant terrines, all that kind of stuff. So it was it was hard. It was a nice kitchen, but it was a hard kitchen, you know. And and, and obviously lots of pressure. So I was I was never sort of given the tools to deal with that pressure. Um, so I, I I did end up getting a bit burnt out by the end of my my year and a half there. Um, sort of on your eighteen hour days and 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 doing what you need to do to to get through. So I um. I, I kind of I, – I didn't deal with it in the best ways, you know. It was an old-school upbringing that I had in the kitchen and I was very much a product of my my uh, my surroundings, you know. Um, so I, I came out of there.
1: How, how important was the water side in for your development, though, as a chef moving forward?
0: Uh, look, I, I, I wouldn't change the time I had – for the world, you know, like the standards that are there. There was only three, three Michelin star uh, restaurants in the country. There was uh, Ramsey's in London, to Ramsey Royal Hospital Road, and then the Waterside Inn and the Fat Duck, and they were both in Bray, this tiny little village, which had two pubs and two restaurants. Heston owned both the pubs and one of the restaurants, and then the, there was the Waterside. So there wasn't even a post office in the village, you know, so it was it – was, um, it was it was it was amazing. Like I've I've, I've I learned so much there and I'm so thankful for my time that I had there. First time I met Michelle Roux, I, I sort of elbowed him in the chest cuz he he snuck up behind me and I thought it was someone mucking around and turned around and was like, "Oh, sorry, chef. How are you going?" blah blah blah. So, <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was fun. Um, but yeah, like I said, it was it was it was a tough kitchen. Um, when I, on my first week there, it's the type of place where uh, people would go go out for lunch or go for their split. If you're, if you're lucky enough to get a split and not come back, you know, the, either the knives will be there; they're just houdini on you. So, uh, two of the two of the chefs on my first day said they were going for doctor's appointments, and the sous chef went, "Looks like it's just me and you on the veg section," you know, and that was. Michael Nizero, my first my first day in the in a three Michelin star kitchen. He's like, y- "You okay?" I went, "Yeah, no worries. We'll, we'll we'll show me what to do, and I'll do it." So it, he he brought it up a fair while. He he went on, and he's won his own Michelin star in in Bath Priory, and and um, achieved some great things as well. Um, but yeah it was it was an institution you know it's it's one of those things like my my lecturers at college both worked underneath chefs that had had um, worked for Escoffier, so my sort of heritage has is, is all the way f- from Escoffier rue brothers, which are sort of like the most influential chefs in england um from the 60s onwards sort of thing. They're, they're the ones that trained up Ramsey, they've trained up Marco, anyone that's anyone sort of went through those kitchens, you know, and 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 did their time. What led to
1: the move to Australia? Uh,
0: one, of, one of my friends who I met at the waterside um, actually had he'd gone on to Greece and done his sort of homage to Greece and, and worked there, Alexis, and, he was on his way back to us and said, Do "You want to come over and see what it's like, you know?" So, um, yeah, I, I, I jumped on a plane eleven years ago and, and been here ever since. Settled in Melbourne um, for two years first. Uh, we opened up a, helped open up a restaurant called Hobba, which was in Peran. Um, that was that was a monster of a restaurant, a, a cafe even. We were um, we'd have six A four pages of. Back to front of uh, waiting lists each day on a weekend, so it just you'd look out to the left. It was a, a double garage, 90 seater, um, or triple garage on Paran. Uh, it used to be a, a um, mechanics. You look over outside, and it just looked like a zombie apocalypse of people just waiting to come in and sit down and, and eat. You know, the ticket machine wouldn't stop going from when you opened the door till till four o'clock. We'd stay there on bread crates because. It was me, Josh, who was the exec chef, um, a friend of mine from training at the gym. Uh, we, I was doing jiu-jitsu back in those days, and he was a number plate puncher and and uh, a foreign student who who didn't speak English. One of one of my best mates now called uh, Wellington, um, and. And uh, yeah, we, we were staying there with milk crates because even though we were only open breakfast and lunch, we were, we were prepping as much in house as we could. We were making the burger buns, um, all of that, like the baked beans, all of that sort of style. At um, triple cooked chips on the first day, soon sort of realized the error in all ways there. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we were doing a lot because he had worked at uh, um, the fat duck in, in, in England and I actually I only just stumbled across him from an add-on gum tree, I think, when I was doing my backpacking bit. So, um, that was that was intense, though. I, I, I didn't have a day off for about three months and, like I said, we were sleeping there and and doing whatever it needed to be done. Um and like we were doing ten thousand eggs a week from from the first week, uh, we were doing the slow poach, sixty two and a half degree eggs, and sort of changing a little bit of what the cafe scene was, uh, pretty much a decade ago. So it was it was it was interesting.
1: What was it like for you working in Australia, having dealt with? Uh, the produce of the UK particularly game birds and then coming to Australia with such different ingredients and produce what was it like for you the change
0: it was interesting i i learned so much you know and and you sort of see see the different produce and you you just try and associate it or well, for myself i was trying to associate it with the stuff that i knew from back home and tasting it and seeing if the techniques that i knew could make something great out of this ingredient that I hadn't seen before, you know. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic to be exposed to all of those new sort of Asian influence as well, um, which wasn't too big growing up back home. Like, I mean, in in England, Asians, Indian, you know. So that's sort of my association. And you come over here and you go, oh, okay, there's a lot of a lot of other ingredients and, and I suppose I was a bit naive before I got over here. You know, I'd never really um, seen much else. I'd always done the, the fine dining um, and very classical French. Um, so, yeah, I I, I wanted to it – was, it was great. And I'd, I'd gone from doing that sort of 80 to 100 hours a week to the cafe scene. I, I I just felt like a change. I went for jobs at Attica, I went for jobs at View Monde, got offered positions everywhere that I went, but I I I just needed a bit of a break, you know. Um, and the cafe scene over here was was fantastic. You're making whatever you, like everything in house, a lot of chefs that have, have gone out of the fine dining. It wasn't wasn't light back home. Back home you say you're working in a cafe and they think you're doing a greasy spoon with bacon eggs full English fried bread and and uh it's it's completely different. It's relaxed dining. The the free blue ducts have been open for a couple of years, so they were kinda like your pioneers in that casual dining from Tetsuyas and and changing changing what the industry was and, and what you had to do to sort of survive in it, you know.
1: Well, your detour from fine dining is quite fascinating. You created a peanut butter company. You've um, made your own uh, bacon, um, worked with a coffee company. It's It's been a real detour. And tell us why that happened and, and what it was like getting away from that old school training that you had had.
0: Um, look, it was, it was tricky. When I first came over um... – I worked at a little cafe in Sandringham in Melbourne and, and it was it was really difficult making that transition and I've I've had a lot of chefs come over to travel and 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 said, Oh look, just have a little break, go in a cafe and they can't they can't do it. They can't prep and, and cook at the same time. Um, for me it was I'd always sort of I'd done kickboxing when I was seventeen and when you're working that much, you don't have time to to do any training. So I'd sort of let myself go a bit, and I, I wanted to get back into training and doing martial arts. And I found a gym in Melbourne, which was fantastic, uh, doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and MMA and that kind of stuff. So I I, I sort of sunk myself into this. So I I, I finish work at three, come home, and then I train every night, and spend two three hours training, learning different skills. Um, and for me, it just kind of if I think if I'd gone to Euratica or or Vudemond, I would have got homesick very quickly, whereas I was able to build a network within food and outside of food, and it just it, it allowed me to fall in love again, you know, and, and, and really enjoy it and take it back. Um, the hierarchy, love the hierarchy, but again, like I said, it was, it was always being a self-starter, so I wasn't really good at people telling me, what to do, how to do it, do this next, do this next. As, as much as it is nice to switch off, I, I, I always felt like there was a, a different way to organise your time and, and manage your time management. So so to jump off of the water side in and go to a cafe is obviously a very big sidestep or a very big step back, depending on which way you want to look at it. But like you said, I, I was able to craft a different a different career path. Well, I'm not working here you at know, eighty 90, 100 hours a week to, to cook for an ego or cook for whatever you want to say, cook for myself, I was able to create that work-life balance. Um, I was a private chef for the past three years as well, so I was kind of work, working 12, till 12 to 8, which was fantastic because we had a, 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 a newborn when I started there. He's now three, three and a half. So I, I was able to spend the morning with him. I was able to put him to bed at night and um, and it was amazing. I, I, I wouldn't have given that time back for the world, you know, and I could not have done that if I was doing your conventional restaurant shifts. Um, so for me, it's – I grew up with – my dad's an antiques dealer. I grew up with him around a lot and and I wanted to make sure that I – I had that for my son, so being able to do the peanut butter, I was at Single Origin Roasters um, for three years. They sponsored me, and, and they had a peanut butter meal there, so I, I don't really like peanut butter. So so it is and it's funny. like I, I don't really like the plain peanut butter, but I, I, I came up with a recipe, which was um, almonds, peanuts, honey, salt, and a neutral oil, and it, it got that balance just where it's sweet, salty, the almonds cut through the peanutiness. So it's, it's a bit more balanced, you know? Um, and while I was at Singalo, we were making our own bacon. I was doing nitrate free bacon using feather and bones pork neck, um, because it was a cheaper cut. So I was able to use like the best, the best meat that I could get hold of and, and make the bacon there. So I was doing nitrate free bacon, which doesn't stay pink and it tastes more like a seasoned pork. So after we had opened up um, Botany for Singalo, and we were sort of getting in the way, uh, getting ready to open up the the city store, I, I kind of went, you know what, I need to go back home, do my three months at home, come back over um, and go from there. So I went back home and worked in a traditional smoker for, for three months that had been going since the 1990s and learned how to make bacon the smoked salmon there, and 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 all of those different cured and smoked products, you know, and and wanted to come back and and have a go at doing it properly. So we were doing a market stand with um, with our dry cured and cold smoked bacon um, as a bacon and egg roll, you know, and we were doing the slow poached eggs that you were frying. So it looks a bit
1: like a scallop, and um, yeah, lots lots of different stuff. What sort of impact has that fine dining background and that move to more casual and also retail products. What sort of impact has that had on what you're doing at, at Berrimer Vault House?
0: Um, yeah, look, with, have with the retail products at the moment, cause this is a new startup. It's been going since the 1st of May. I've, I've kind of put those on the back burner at the moment. Um, just because I need to focus all my attention down there really. Um, but, Look, it's 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 been fantastic. It's been fantastic. Like I was, I was able to to get those launched while I was doing the um, the the less hours doing the private work, and then um, I was, I've I've been able to put those on hold. Uh, they're ticking over gently. Like my my wife's or oh, Jessica Pedemont, who's who's got the chocolate shop, uh, chocolate artisan in in Haberfield, so. So she's retailing them from there. We've got a couple of other retail stores across Sydney as well that are taking it, but I've, I've, I've just got to let that maintain itself at the moment while I get Verima set up. Um, obviously, that's a, a bit of a drive away for me as well. It's about an hour and a half, so the commute is um, pretty decent. Um, and, and there's not many staff at the moment, especially in rural, rural towns. So we're kind of um, – I'm really keen to to get the four day working weeks happening for the staff uh, when we do get enough. Um, as I, I, it's what the way the industry is moving. You know, it's it's not about getting the the hundred hour weeks anymore and trying to progress. Like if you look back, you sort of you go, well, I've done two and a half worth of work per week." So you, you sort of you learn a lot in that time. You know. Um, Whereas now it's, I, I think, with the nurturing and and being able to do those forty hours a week, you get a lot more focus out of your team, and especially if they can get their three days off, um, they're just not exhausted. They're not running on on adrenaline and fumes, and it's 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 a lot easier to to
1: navigate. You know, you mentioned that Berremer Vault House is in a building from building from the eighteen forties. Tell us a bit about the building. And and the restaurant.
0: Yeah, so it used to be it used to be a blacksmiths back in the day, and it's just over the road from the the old jail. So it's got a couple of holding cells, which are now private dining rooms. Um, and there's apparently a tunnel that that tunnels from the cells at the vault house to to the jail uh, and it's where they used to sneak in contraband and, and black market stuff and, and professionals of the night. Um, wow. so it's got, it's got a lot of history there, you know? So I, I, went over there, uh, to check it out. Simon, um, got in contact with me and, 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 uh, it started off as a consulting job. um, was just going to get the menu set up and 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 all the recipes sorted out and do an ongoing gig and and now it's progressed to to executive chef so i'm i'm quite happy to make the change it's nice to sort of be back out there in the restaurant scene and and getting a bit more industry currency you know i feel like i'm in a position mentally where i'm ready to to get out there and sort of show australia a bit of what what i do what i've kind of spent my life working towards and and learning um, so look the restaurants the restaurants fantastic they've, they've kind of done a, a, a whole refurb over the whole place um, but they've kept a lot of the original features like we got the largest fireplace in the southern highlands um, which is fantastic it's beautiful um, but they've put some modern twists in as well you know which is kind of the direction that we're going with that food you've got that familiarity and then you've got just something a little bit different. Like we're doing a, 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 a um, sorry, a Bloody Mary foam on top of the the prawn cocktail, for instance, and and that kind of style. So you just get that little hint of spiciness that comes through. Um, so it's 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 it fits in well. As soon as I saw the building when it was in um, production stage. I, I fell in love. It just reminded me of Gravesite. reminded me of the buildings that I knew growing up, um, and and I could just see the style of food that I wanted to do. You know, it's 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 kind of it's for me it's everyday food. It's it's homely food that you can eat every day, but everything's done with those proper techniques that I've learned throughout my career. Um, flavors first. There's no point in having a food that looks fantastic. You spend 20 minutes putting little flowers on with tweezers and by the time the customer gets it, it's cold, you know, and there's no substance there. It's all a lot of style over substance. Whereas for me now it's like, let's make decent hearty food full of flavor and and, and still make it look nice, present it simply and, and go from there.
1: The last year and a half has been challenging for many, but what's some of the positives that have come out of this experience for you? Um,
0: look, for me, um, it's – it's a bit different. I was quite, I was quite, I was very fortunate because I was doing the private work. So I didn't really lose much, um, I suppose, income or, or business during that time. Uh, unfortunately, I lost a couple of, of clients from my consulting. Um, but always, when there's huge shake up and there's huge turmoil, there's always going to be. Um, innovations that come out at the end you know so it's it's for me it's it's a great opportunity for the industry to reinvent itself like like I said you don't have to do those 50 60 70 80 90 hours a week to, to get the results and people people realize how fragile the hospitality industry was with the amount of places that did have to close because there wasn't wasn't a a, um, a, a slush fund that the business owners could dip into, you know? So I think it's going to be great if we can, if we can navigate coming out of COVID, obviously it's going to take a few years, but if we can navigate that right, educate our customers about the real cost of food, the real cost of the rent, the wages, giving staff a a living wage. um, So they don't have to have another job. They can have that work-life balance, spend time with their kids, um, and, and grow as people, you know, you've got to invest in your staff and that's part of what we're going to do as as we're moving forward. It's sort of baby steps, you know, you start by paying them a living wage, giving them that time, making sure they're not doing more than their sort of 38 hours and um, and then building and growing from there. Like uh, the industry so far behind most others um, and it's a, a perfect opportunity to come out the other side and go, look, We're not racing our our competition to get the prices as low as we can get and to the bottom and do quantity over quality. We're we're going, this is a quality product. We're using local suppliers. We're using good staff that we're paying properly and we're investing in. And um, this is the cost that it, it is to get your food on the plate.
1: Well, Tommy, it's wonderful to see you taking people on a nostalgic trip through your food. Um, We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Uh, Good luck with the uh, Vault House and uh, keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Hugs. Thanks for having me.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen Follow us on Instagram at deepintheweedspodcast or email us at podcast at deepentheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.